Hello, and welcome to Kickout 299. I'm Rachel. My pronouns are they, them. And I'm Alicia. My pronouns are she, her. At the end of last year, we did a survey on Twitter asking you guys for different ideas that you'd want to uh, hear from us on the podcast. And one of the most common suggestions we received was that you wanted to hear about some Joshi stories and topics and promotions. Rachel and I are both interested in exploring these kinds of ideas for Kickout, but we don't feel as knowledgeable on speaking to Joshi as we would All Japan or NOAA or New Japan or other companies and eras of wrestling. So in order to bring you the best quality content and information possible, we brought in a passionate expert to talk to us about stardom and specifically how stardom wrestlers craft their stories. So we're really excited to hear from Dana today. Dana, please tell us a little bit about you and anything that you want to plug right off the bat. Uh, hi, I'm Dana. My pronouns are she, her. Yeah, so I, I run a primarily translation blog, uh, mostly focused on stardom, but with the odd uh, other Joshi company stuff or um, the odd show review or, or thoughts, things like that. But mostly it's translation. Um, and I know especially that's what I have most of my followers for. So we are here to talk about the promotion that is very near and dear to your heart, and that's going to be stardom. But uh, specifically, we are talking about a topic that's sort of near and dear to all of our hearts, and that is uh, storytelling as well. So could you give us maybe a brief overview of how stardom crafts its stories? Yeah, so stardom... And to be clear, I don't necessarily think that that each of these individual elements like, oh, stardom is the only place telling stories in this way. Like, I think it's uh, a not totally uncommon um, approach in, in Japanese wrestling, um, but it does seem to get and like across promotions get ignored um, among Western fans, which like hurts me personally, like because um, that's so like that's the bread and butter. That's what I'm there for. So the thing about stardom for me is that their, their stories uh, move quickly and there's always something for everyone. Tam Nakno, who is my favorite wrestler, um, described it as a soap opera with 30 main characters. Um, so it's like, if you hate Julia, she's currently um, the, the world champion in stardom. If you can't stand her, it's not like, you know, the sort of back when people hated Roman Reigns where it's like, too bad you're getting Roman Reigns. You could. I think probably completely ignore Julia's story, even though she's the main event, and just focus on on your favorites and still get a lot out of their stories. It's not like, oh, well, this person is, you know, a jobber, so they just have nothing right now. Or it's not, oh, you know, this person just lost the title, so now they're being pulled off and they're just not doing anything. So it sort of feels like everyone's telling their own stories. I thought that was really interesting. Like, everyone is the... Um main character of their own story. And I think you mentioned um, that Rossi Ogawa sort of gives them free reign. Was that right? Yeah, yeah. So he's talked multiple times, um, and I believe even in some English interviews as well, um, about how he sees his biggest strength as, as giving the roster the freedom to, to tell the stories they want to. And I agree that that is Star's biggest strength, in my opinion, because, um, you know, I as much as Stardom means to me, I don't think he's a, he's a perfect booker. I certainly don't agree with every single thing that, that's ever happened there. But it's about the stories that the roster chooses to tell that always grips me. And like, I don't think any wrestling promotion has perfect booking. I've never seen any wrestling that didn't break my heart sometimes. 
But the thing that's kept me around in stardom is that even at my absolute most heartbroken, a, a day or two later, I, I wanna know what's gonna happen next. I think that's something we can both really uh, relate to, you know, <laughs> um, and it, it is interesting that you, you mentioned that this is not an uncommon thing for Japanese wrestling, because that's something I think um, we really see in the wrestling we watch as well. And um, I know Alicia has a couple thoughts on uh, like her journey through Noah and things like that and AJPW. And um, especially recently, we've been sort of, I guess we call it cherry picking the okay. matches that, yeah, that we want to watch. And that sort of seems similar, like you could ignore Julia or you can ignore this and you can ignore that um, and only watch certain matches of the wrestlers you like and still get the stories. So I think yeah. that's, that's really cool. And if you guys are making the jump from, you know, men's pro wrestling over to Joshi, that might be a, uh, a good sort of similarity. Yeah. And like I, I fully acknowledge that I have the the stardom brainworms and like they live in my mind so I'm watching everyone all the time like I'm a I'm a every match every show person but I also don't think that's how you have to watch at all like I don't remotely think that's the approach you you need to take um and I get people asking me a lot like how to how to start with stardom and I kind of feel like a, a terrible person to ask for that because my answer is always just pick a, a show that you think seems important or looks decent watch however much of it you want and and just see who interests you and follow them. That's largely how I feel about all Japan too. You know, I just spoke to someone yesterday actually who messaged me and was asking for a place to start. And that's kind of one of the really good things about at least all Japan right now is that you can pick whatever show just happened and start there, which is really Mm -hmm. the kind of great thing about their storytelling and how it works. But I will say, just to bring it back to Rossi Ogawa, I'm, I keep trying to think right now, even if there was something in like Tajiri's book recently that I've read where I could compare it to, but I think that it's really interesting that um, that he spoke so plainly about letting the wrestlers have that free reign to create their own stories, because that's something that Rachel and I talk a lot about when we're discussing Noah or All Japan or even occasionally New Japan, but there's a bit more gray area there. Whereas to hear a booker speak so plainly about that with their wrestling promotion and, and the, the people that wrestle for them, I think is really interesting. I can't compare that to something I've heard from like Nosawa Rongai or Tajiri or someone that I know has been booking recently. Mm. Yeah. And it's something, another part of it that I find compelling is that it kind of gives people room to fail. Um, and, and they don't, step in and I mean it might change sort of where they sit on the card or something like that but they don't step in and say oh you're doing this now like there was um I remember back when I watched New Japan there was a story with Chuck Taylor where he would like just go crazy sometimes and like hurt people (laughs) and for best friends fans it was this big thing where it was like oh where's this gonna go is he gonna turn on Trent like like where's this coming from what's gonna happen and then once they joined AEW he did like a podcast where he was like no that was just Gato just told me that that was my character now and I just did that sometimes it just happened it wasn't going anywhere so you don't you don't really get stuff like that in startup which I appreciate yeah it seems like everyone always knows where they want to take things for themselves Tommy Hayashishta was the the red belt champion a couple years ago and at the start of her, her Red Belt run, she didn't actually super have her character figured out. Um, she was just like cool and kind of aloof, but hadn't really like figured out quite how to present that and didn't quite like seem to know what that meant. And it led to a thing where, where um, 
Tam was the white belt champion at the time and was being placed more prominently than her because she had her character very, very figured out and was having very emotional um, stories and stuff like that where Tommy didn't quite know how to sell that yet. But then once Utami had her feud with Shuri that I think brought in a lot of new fans at the time, then it started to click for Utami. And then she like, by the time she lost the belt, she very much felt like the top champion. You got to, to watch her put that together in real time. Yeah, that's really cool. And that's, I was actually going to ask was, you know, watching these people sort of figure out themselves and figure out their stories and um, seeing how the roster, I guess, collaborates where um, I'll just ask, do you feel like Shuri sort of helped her figure out her character or is there just too much shoe element there that you can't really tell? Um, I would say that is hard to tell. Um, she's definitely talked about being grateful to Shuri and I suspect that that she did help her it might not have necessarily been a mentorship thing it could have just been the right person to to play off of yeah um I know she's also talked about getting some ideas of her presentation stuff like that from seeing uh, a specific idol um whose name I don't remember off the top of my head but I guess he's a he's an idol with a very like androgynous presentation and she kind of went like oh like I could still do this like even though this is a man I could still use a lot of these elements and that was kind of what set her on she said that was like what set her on the road to where she ended up and she's changed her her presentation and stuff again since then um but you know that's that's wrestling it's always going yeah that's really cool thank you for the uh insight there so um yeah you I we did ask you to prepare some examples for us yes. of uh some storytelling but uh, yeah, I, I am really interested to sort of um, hear your insight because you have a, a very unique way of describing uh, how oh. storytelling works in stardom that we really, really liked. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about the spinning plate style? Yeah, so this is how, how I think of it. To me, it feels like spinning plates. So everyone has, has their thing going. They're doing whatever they're doing at all times. Sometimes people are, are less of a focus for a little while, you know, and their, their plate starts to wobble. So then they get something and it's not necessarily a big thing at all. Like it'll be a, a simple uh, singles match against like a mentor or a rival or something at a house show. And it doesn't necessarily, you know, go away people aren't expecting like it's not a huge upset it's just it's just another beat so they get that little thing if this is if this is your girl if this is the one that you're really invested in following um you're not just going six months where she doesn't do anything she'll have these little matches that still matter to her arc um and conversely if someone is really really on top for a long time usually once they step back a little bit they're not immediately in something really important right away they step back and, and have some time to, to kind of be a little silly or, you know, just team with, with their teammates, something like that, do something that's not quite as important for a while and just sort of coast on that momentum that they have until they need attention again. So what interests me is, I guess, the, um, the plates that are spinning in the background, those uh, mm -hmm. little stories. Um, and I know you sort of presented us with some, some rookies stories that mm -hmm. I was really interested in. So, uh, Let's let's hear a little bit about Lady C because I was uh, very very interested in that one. Yeah, so Lady C um, is one of my favorites in in large part because of where she comes from. She's very much like if you know her whole story, she's a fan that's like living the dream. Around like 2019, um, they may have started it in 2018. 
um, they did this thing where they ran these exercise classes for women. And it was a way of trying to, to reach out to more women fans. I don't think they were ever particularly popular or anything like that, but they would post a picture from every exercise class every week. And Lady C was at every single one of these exercise classes. Um, and if you're watching shows from back then as well, you can see her start to show up in the back row next to the, the entrance way at like almost every local Tokyo show. She starts showing up more and more if you, if you recognize her. And then of course, when the pandemic hit, they, they shut these down. And she told the story once that when they canceled that, she was, she was really sad that she couldn't do these anymore, you know? And Tam Nakano told her like, well, why don't you train to be an actual wrestler? So she did start training for real. And in November, 2020, uh, she made her debut. Lady C is very results oriented. It's very important to her that she, she gets results. She's not doing things because she wants to or because they'll make her happy. It's like what she has to do. So for a long time, she didn't choose a faction, which is very rare in the, the modern landscape of stardom. Stardom is very focused on their faction system. Um, so Lady C kind of bouncing around and teaming with various factions was a rarity. Um, and her thing was that she didn't want to weigh anyone down. She didn't want to be in a faction permanently or, or full time until she felt like she could really bring something to them. Um, so her main two factions that she had connections to were Cosmic Angels, because like I said, Tam uh, was the one who encouraged her wrestling. She said Tam was her favorite wrestler. Um, she also befriended Unagi Sayaka very quickly. That's like a real life friendship. They would post pictures from uh, being on tour together and stuff like that. So they were actual friends. Um, so she had this connection to Cosmic Angels. She was also very connected to DDM, uh, Donna Del Mondo, particularly Micah and Himika. In the story, they had a very big mentorship role to her. And it was just a very, very strong like Senpai Kohai relationship. In real life, they're probably also close friends based on um, like some tweets and stuff like that. At one point in a pre-match interview, uh, Himeka calls her Chiechan instead of Lady C um, and doesn't even seem to, seem to notice because um, it's very clearly like just what she calls her all the time. And Lady C gets very embarrassed and flustered in this promo because it's their, their relationship isn't supposed to be like that as far as their wrestling characters. So yeah, it's like you sort of, that's, that's also just something I always enjoy is, is when you get to see the little bits of like how people actually relate to each other slip through. But yeah, so she's very closely connected to Donna Del Mondo as well. So like, she, yeah, say, she doesn't end up joining either of those, does she? Yeah. So she was in this situation for quite a while. And then in fall 2021, there was this harebrained scheme. It's a, this story in particular. Um, I there remember are parts of it. This one on Twitter yeah. with the masks, right? Yeah. This story is one of those ones that doesn't quite <laughs> add up to this day, but it works because that's Julia. So yeah, so Julia brings in two new members to DDM who would, they would eventually be revealed. Um, and this is also kind of one of the things that started, it can be difficult to talk about one storyline in isolation because you very quickly run up against other crisscrossing storylines and stuff all the time. So Julia was bringing these people in and attacking seemingly at the time random rookies. Um, and we didn't know that this was Julia at the time. It was revealed later. This was shown to be part of Julia trying to recruit my Sakurai, who at the time was in Cosmic Angels. I, I think her logic was that it would be like, is this really what you want? Like, you, wh why do you want to feel weak like this? As she's attacking her with sledgehammers, I guess. 
But Lady C was caught in the crossfire of this. And that really rattled her belief in DDM. So she had seemed basically ready to join. Um, just, just looking for, you know, some one big win to, to justify asking them to let her in. But then she was really not sure about that. Because like I said, Lady C is a very, very serious person who, who believes a lot in, in like, you have to do the right thing and you do the thing you're supposed to. So she wasn't sure DDM was what she thought they were anymore. She was very rattled. And then at the start of 2022, uh, Queen's Quest was feuding with Oedo Tai because their, their previous leader, Momo Watanabe, had just left them to join Oedo Tai. So they were essentially getting bullied is the, the simplest way to put it. And Lady C saw that and it was where she projected her emotions about DDM basically. Um, she said she had always wanted to join Queen's Quest, which I, I frankly don't believe. Uh, which, you know, is the, the core thing of following any wrestling storytelling is that, you know, once in a while wrestlers lie. So she she does have some connections to Queen's Quest. And certainly um, they they had helped her, I'm sure, especially in, in real life, everyone helps everyone else train and things like that. But as far as story connections to, to Queen's Quest, they were not very strong before this. Um, but it's it's a place for her to channel her weird feelings about DDM because she can stand up to someone who she sees as bullying in a certain, in a similar way to, to what happened to her um, without actually having to confront DDM or deal with those feelings. Um, so she joins Queen's Quest uh, and she, she makes some changes. She changes her look, you know, she gets very cool new gear, all of that stuff. So she changes up her look, she gets new gear. She's with Queen's Quest now, but as far as results, as far as that sort of thing, it's not a huge change. She can beat some of the other newer rookies, which you'd sort of like hope that she could, um, but that's about it. In June, Queen's Quest is teaming in a main event against DDM and they lose. And this is not uh, a big main event at all. It's a total house show. Um, I don't think the main event was even actively like building to anything. It was just a main event tag match, but they lose. Uh, and Micah gets on the mic and directly addresses Lady C. She says that her and Himika are still watching her. And she asks if she's really uh, sure about joining Queen's Quest, if she really feels like she's getting what she needs out of there. She says, yeah, we, we see that you've grown in six months, but it's been six months. Everyone should grow if they're doing anything in six months. You haven't grown enough. You could be better than this. Um, she asks her if she understands what she's missing. So then Lady C makes a point of she's going to get into the five star and she's going to fight Micah in a singles match um, and, you know, prove to her that she's found what she needs. This is the first year that Stardom's done a qualifier tournament for the five star. So Lady C is in that. She does not do particularly well. Uh, she, it's, it's not a large tournament. It's only four matches, but she only wins one. Um, and based on the way the scheduling works out, she's eliminated pretty far in advance of the actual end of the tournament. So even with that, um, even though it's very clear she's not getting into the five star, she still gets her singles match with Micah. And again, it's just on a house show. It's just uh, a random singles match. But she gets her chance to try and prove to, to Micah that, that she's made progress see what you mean though like with the spinning plates like you know they still keep these stories very much alive like it's surprising yeah. that this happened in like a main event of a house show like this was sort of a um 
a go home or like sort of the ending of the show is still the storyline with Lady C who's otherwise a rookie. So it's really interesting that they bring these to the forefront every so often. Yeah, and that's the thing is that like, I wouldn't blame anyone for not knowing this story is going on at all. Like as, as much as you can talk about it and it's another very overwrought uh, dramatic wrestling story, if someone's skipping rookie matches and not watching anything with Lady C in it, you could have a perfectly fine time and never know any of this is, is really going on. And none of these are like big time matches or anything like that. Yeah, I think the nice thing though is that everybody's story is important though. Like yeah. It still feels important. And one thing it actually reminds me of, and I think Lishi um, might be able to comment on this, is um, Manabu Soya, <laughs> is that I think yeah. almost everyone um, I know has sort of missed that story, except you, me, and a handful of uh, friends where that story is going on. Yeah, it's it reminds me a lot of that. And then, you know, he he got that main event with Wagner that was absolutely stupendous. But um, yeah, that's, it, there's some similarities. I, I think what makes the difference though, is that you and I, I mean, we cottoned onto this because we watch every All Japan show, we watch every match. And so we knew it was weird when he went over to Kawamori in like, what it was like eight minutes. He like demolished a Kawamori who had a belt at the time and uh, Soya wrestles for Noah. So that was weird. And then we, I went to the site that I use. I went to the, what's it called? Battle something or other, where I get the promo Battle stuff, Battle News to get the uh, the translations. And then we sat with the translations and that's when we realized you translated that stuff out. We talked about it and we realized, oh, like this, this is an angle. This is like a story, the way that Takao is talking. And that's what clued us into it. And that's, you know, some of that is access. You have the ability to translate. I constantly am pulling stuff from everywhere to try to figure <laughs> out what's happening with everyone. But I feel like that's where Dana, then you come in. Cause I feel like if, if someone follows you and they're really invested in stardom and they want to know, I mean, you're translating this stuff all the time. So I'm sure that you can speak to a lot of these rookie stories because you're passionate about them. So you're going to be translating what they say to some degree too. And that I think probably really helps in this way as well, because otherwise I think a lot of it comes down to access when it comes to the men's promotions yeah absolutely I completely agree and I think that's the, the case for stardom as well I think it's kind of uh even a natural thing that sometimes on you know uh western uh fandom for any Japanese wrestling company you get a lot of fans who are really just in it in sort of the the action sense like the the work rate sense fans who aren't necessarily even that interested in following the stories um, I think that's normal because they don't have access to the stories. So it's going to attract people who still get enjoyment out of it without having that information. Stardom isn't, you know, WWE with half hour promos and stuff like that. But I feel like Stardom is a very, very high uh, drama, like almost soap operatic promotion. So it just, it feels so stark to me when people have this uh, image of stardom as as a super super like sports based all athletic it's just about the matches promotion because there's so much more that's not there and just isn't available and stardom does, does have some English coverage certainly more than certain other promotions and I know some of the promotions that do have official English coverage it's not always perfect English coverage so yeah I feel like there's a big kind of disparity among how much of the story people typically think they're getting from stardom and how much actually is getting translated 
Um, and that's why I do stuff like the like the press conferences and stuff like that. I feel like it's it's really important. It's also just really good. Like I just like I said, I love the stories that they tell. I love the relationships that they have. So yeah, to me, it's like like I said, I don't think you need to watch every single thing the way I do to enjoy any wrestling promotion. But I do kind of feel like you know, there's there's always this attitude that it's it all has to come out in the ring. That's the only thing that matters. And I kind of disagree with that. I feel like mm. only watching matches is kind of akin to only watching promos. That might be a lot of what you enjoy, but I think only watching certain parts of either of it doesn't give you a complete image of, of the story. I completely agree with you. And I know Rachel has sort of flagged this for later on in our discussions, but I'll move I, things around. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Yeah, I'm glad that you you brought that up because often a language barrier present. I think people are more inclined to skip conferences, uh, yeah, press conferences, skip interviews, you know, skip anything where there's a lot of talking and there's not going to be subtitles and someone immediately able to provide translations in the way that you do, especially Dana, because um, not everybody has that. But for for many years, I you know, watching wrestling, watching Japanese wrestling was a very solitary thing for me. I didn't have like, there was you know, all my friends in my life outside of podcast, Twitter, whatever. They don't really watch this stuff. So <laughs> I watched it primarily alone. And um, me and Rachel have been friends for two years now. And now I have a different set of friends that watch this stuff that came with um, getting another Twitter account. But I watch this stuff primarily alone, and I've never um, been able to understand Japanese, but I would have done myself a major disservice if I didn't seek out countless hours of videos that have nothing to do with the wrestling, just watching interviews and watching the wrestlers talk, because you can learn so much about people, even when you don't speak their language, just by watching them talk, whether they're going to be completely in character or whether it's really more of a casual interview and it's more like a shoot interview. You're still mm -hmm. able to learn who they are and things about them, which is why years later now, where I'm able to afford more like professional translations and Rachel does so much translating, I'm always sort of amazed at my read on people that I followed now for years and just things that I assumed about them or you know whatever that I just was able to kind of I guess pick up from the amount of, of content that I've watched even though I don't speak the language and I've never been able to understand the language I feel you know pretty validated in that but that's how much you can learn when you don't skip those things just because you don't understand you can pick up on a lot just by doing those things I think mm -hmm. absolutely yeah um, I was actually the same way before I learned any Japanese which I, I started learning basically to understand uh, wrestling tweets to at least be able to find the the glaring mistakes in in like an auto translation and and yeah I was the same way where I would, I would watch the the footage that was there even though it was completely in Japanese not subtitled not anything no one was was really posting much at all um, and yeah you just you just get a sense of the the characterization even at the very minimum and there's there's so much still in that yeah I actually didn't know that about you Alicia <laughs> That's a, that's a little new new thing I learned, but that's really interesting that you guys sort of picked up character that way, because that is a huge question that I had, um, was sort of how you guys um, got into picking up on these storylines, because you guys both have an incredible read on that, and uh, sort of speaking of to bring us all the way back, because I want to know how Lady C's story ends, or I guess uh, ends to, to the point where it is right now. 
but yeah, there, there's a lot of um, interesting stuff. And I remember one thing I actually read from you was the press conferences for um, Tag League. And I really, really liked Lady C and uh, her tag partner, who is in DDM. So how yeah. did that happen? Yeah, so so Lady C very much did not get into the five-star. She spends the summer not really doing anything high-key, just seconding for, for people throughout the five-star. Uh, and then Tag League begins in October. Lady C is paired with My Sakurai for Tag League, which is kind of just a, a fluke. Uh, more than anything, like even within the kayfabe of stardom, no one asked for this. No one set this up. It's basically just, okay, you two are pretty much good enough to be in Tag League because it's a more minor tournament. But you're also both the odd ones out in your faction. So we're putting you together. They are like offended at first. They do not like each other at all. Um, they're very upset to be put together. Lady C talks about uh, how she has all these other people that she knows who they could have put her with. But it's like she says Hina, who is another member of Queen's Quest, and also in high school. So it's like, no, Lady C, she she has tests. Like, she's not going to be able to do this tournament. But at their segment in the, the Tag League press conference, they're basically arguing. And then Mai goes, like, hang on a second. My Lady C my fair lady that's what we can call ourselves and lady c is like what are you what are you talking about that's that's pretty good yeah maybe we could go with that so it's very you know like they even though they dislike each other they already share a brain cell um and they take a while to to come together in the tournament um, and they don't do well at all as far as results. They don't win a single uh, single match, even though watching them, you can see them gel together better and better as it goes. It's still very much a, a very, very early stages kind of thing. And they lose all of their matches, but they're very close friends by the end. Uh, they They tweet together, they post about hanging out together and stuff like that. So they've still grown. So once they they lose, you see they're kind of, alternate takes again, where Lady C is very, very upset about the results. She really wanted to have something to, to prove that like this worked out, that she held her own. So she really wants to, to keep getting stronger now. And she, she wants to, to face Mai again because they're in different factions. So that's the only way they'll be able to share the ring again. And she's devastated, but that's the way things have to be. Whereas Mai, takes a bit more heart in the fact that they get along so well now. Um, she's obviously disappointed in the results as well, but the thing she takes from Tag League is how well they got on together. And she wants to see more of that. And she says that she also wants to keep getting stronger, but she wants to get stronger so she can team with Lady C again one day. So we have so more then, than just Mai and, uh, or Micah and Himika um, sort of not really recruiting Lady C, but now we have Mai in the, in the mix as well. So. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so then Triangle Derby is announced, which is their new tournament that has just about wrapped up. The finals haven't quite happened yet. Um, as of recording, I think they will have just happened by the time this episode comes out. For Triangle Derby, Lady C gets paired with, with Micah and Himika. Um, and she goes in and she is very offended again at first. She's, what is going on? I am in Queen's Quest. I swear I'm loyal to Queen's Quest. I didn't ask for this. I don't know what's happening. Why do you keep doing this? 
Himika is also a little perplexed, but she's she's perfectly fine with it. She's happy to team with Lady C. She doesn't have any problems. Uh, and then Micah is just like, oh yeah, I I asked for Lady C to try with, to to team with us. Uh, we're gonna get her into DDM. Lady C's gonna join. Um, just very nonchalantly. So yeah, they they team together for Triangle Derby, and throughout it, you can see how important Micah and Himika are to Lady C, and she sees this as a as a chance to pay them back for everything they gave her um, as a rookie. And again, it's it's one of those examples of how focused Lady C is on on like the the moral things and and getting results and stuff. It's not that she likes them and wants a team with them. It's a chance to pay them back. They do okay in the tournament. I believe they came out with a, a losing record, um, so just below 50-50, um, which is about what you would expect for, for them. Towards the end of the tournament, at the start of, near the start of this month, uh, Himika announced that she's retiring in May. Um, so that reframed some of their, their things. Uh, like, for example, Lady C mentioned that she wrestled part of the tournament injured. Um, she had a back injury that she did physio for so that she could wrestle through it um, rather than have to take time off and miss matches. Um, so, you know, the desperation to, to not miss any chances to team with them is obviously about uh, Himika retiring and, and not having any other chances to team with them. Their last match of the tournament is against the other members of Donna Del Mondo, um, who they were in a, another team called Berry Berry Bombers. So they, they wrestle against each other uh, my Hime would see lose in the main event of uh, in that match. And that match ends with Julia pinning Lady C with her, like, not her, like, an like, ultra pay-per-view level finisher, but her, her main finisher, the glorious driver, which is kind of overkill for Lady C, both, like, in general and in the context of how that match was going. So to me, I see that as a bit of a, a badge of acceptance that she's saying she's, she's worth using her big move on to finish her off. And then in the end of the match, like they, they pose with Lady C. Uh, they let Himika close the show, even though she, her team lost because she's retiring. Um, and she includes Lady C in the, in the DDM roll call, though she does call her Lady D instead. And then in the, the post-match promo after that, they just openly give her the, the chance to join DDM. They just ask, so are you, are you joining? And this is the first time where instead of just saying, well, no, I'm in Queen's Quest, she says, I need more time to think about it. Mm -hmm. um, but they still kind of say like, oh, well, too bad, like not good enough and, and kick her out of the room so they can finish their, their promo. Um, so now that's where things stand. She said she's going to continue seconding for Himika until she retires. She's very kind of conflictedly said she's still in Queen's Quest and she still has things she wants to do with Queen's Quest and stuff like that. Um, so the question is kind of how is watching Himika on, on her retirement road going to affect her? Um, will she, you know, gain more resolve to keep going with Queen's Quest or will she actually pick the things she wants for once? Yeah, and I'm really glad you mentioned how Himika's retirement announcement sort of affected the story because it was a very sudden announcement. I remember waking yeah. up and I, I was talking with Alicia. It was just very sudden. But um, one of the great things about wrestling as a genre is how it sort of blends these real world elements into its storytelling. And it sort of feels like from what you're saying and what you're describing is that um, 
stardom storytelling is really geared towards incorporating, you know, that sort of feeling. Yeah, absolutely. Wrestling storytelling as a whole, actually, but obviously stardom is, is my main focus, is like we never quite actually know what is real. Um, I know Cody Rhodes has, I think it's a quote from his father that he likes, the only thing that's real is the money and the miles. Um, <laughs> and yeah, we just as observers, no matter how real something is, no matter how much real history it draws on, we don't actually know what's like real, real. But I think you can tell when a story comes from a real place, uh, you know, when it, it, it doesn't need the events to be exactly real, it doesn't need the relationships to be exactly real, but when they're drawing on real emotions. And I feel like Stardom does that a lot. Yeah, there's definitely that element of having to sort of navigate what's real and what's not. And I know uh, Alicia and I have had to do that quite a bit, especially lately. Um, yeah. With our past episodes, we've been um, going through this drama with uh, Diamond Ring Kensuke office, and there's just a lot of rumors and everything to, to shift through that I know we could both speak on for quite a while. <laughs> but, um, but what makes that story so powerful is that there's always sort of that kernel of truth that um, the audience really can latch on to. Like, we, we don't really know what happened and quite frankly I don't actually know that the wrestlers even know what happened but um you know the the audience can sort of latch on and discern for themselves like what feels real and what doesn't mm -hmm. and I think I mean to that point it's like to what Dana was saying too about those sort of the way, the way stardom can kind of tap into those emotions that sort of uh, feel very tangible and very I guess relatable in some aspects too I think that's, you know, to use the example of like the, the Kensuke office drama, I mean, what you kind of get into at the end of the day is that these are people who were tired of standing in each other's shadow, right? But that's a really common wrestling trope. And that's the relatable piece. That's the thing that everybody is reacting to. And I think that you can see a lot of that in some of the storytelling that you've even just demonstrated Dana it's all stuff that is very tangible and that people can really grab onto even though this is not and it's kind of an incredible amount of story to be happening not in the main event that's what I keep trying to wrap my brain around because it's it's different in some of the promotions that we're watching from show to show yeah that's that's really what keeps me so hooked and like I get some asks on my my personal tumblr every once in a while um about random storylines or or smaller wrestlers like less important wrestlers and things like that and I always go in kind of feeling like oh I don't have that much to say and I come out with like a whole essay um and yeah it's really what keeps me so hooked on on stardom like Tam Nakano has a bit of a reputation on the the western twitter fandom for being uh, a very lore heavy wrestler but personally I feel like she has that reputation because she makes her history very known she posts her own recap threads uh, on Twitter before really big story matches and stuff like that. So so people, like we talked about with, with having access to it, people have access to Tam's stories because she, she brings them up very frequently. So people know this about her, so she gets a reputation. But in actuality, in my opinion, pretty much everyone inside him has comparable uh, uh, stories all the time. And what's interesting about that is, I, I guess I always, and it might've just be the Bushi Road connection, but I never really thought of stardom as 
incorporating these histories of these wrestlers like you talked about um, Lady C as you know sort of a super fan and um, of course Tam incorporates a lot of her history throughout you know the world of wrestling and um, you um, in your notes wrote a little bit about Komomo who um, has like a history of uh, also being a super fan but yeah comes from different company as well and um, I, I guess I always thought of stardom as something that's sort of booked in a bubble and that, you know, once they're in stardom, everything else isn't as important. And, um, you know, I, I think of this as like Mirai, who's very different from how she was in, say, Tokyo Joshi mm-hmm. uh, or things like that, where um, that's not actually the case. Um, and you mentioning Tam sort of reminded me of that, is that they, they do bring in their history and their real life personalities and who they are as people um, when they bring that into the booking because they are responsible for their own story. Yeah, yeah. And it even, um, that's that's something that's definitely changed in the past couple of years to an extent. Like Stardom was very, I would say Stardom has always acknowledged people's pasts and things like that, but was fairly insular as a company. Um, more recently, they've begun working with outside talent a lot more. Um, and that lets them like really strongly pull on stuff like that. So one thing is like on, on social media, uh, outside of, you know, not posting outside of kayfabe, things like that, um, starting talent don't really seem to be uh, under any like rules about who they can post with or anything like that. So people will post with wrestlers from their pasts, even when those wrestlers in their companies are like very clearly not allowed to mention stardom. So you get a lot of stardom posts with TJPW wrestlers and stuff like that, because I'm pretty sure there's a lot of friendships that that still exist between wrestlers in the two companies. So yeah, yeah, the history comes up a lot and and more so recently. So like you mentioned uh, Mariah as an example. And uh, even her, when she won the Cinderella tournament, she framed it a lot as how she had never won anything before. She didn't win anything big and how in Tokyo Joshi, she felt like there was a a very real ceiling for her. But now she finally had this big win. Um, Julia is a huge one for that. She has her article in Shupro that has always been very, very open about her, her history. With, with wrestlers and other companies, her history in Ice Ribbon. And now that she's champion, as well as throughout the past year with Prominence being fairly active in yes. stardom, uh, her history has come up in a big way. So she just recently had a title match against Suzu Suzuki, who, I mean, you can read the, the press conference translations on my blog. I really feel like they say it so well themselves. Like Julia is, in my opinion, an absolute like world-class promo. So their, their stuff together was extremely emotional and they had really great arts together for the whole year where they kind of kept dancing around each other for a long time. And, and Suzu's thing when she showed up was that she hated Julia so much and she was only there for Julia. And Julia was always very clear that she was trying to drag Suzu into stardom. She was going to get her hooked on stardom. Um, and she did like not only did they did they make up and and Suzu said she got over her hatred of Julia but Suzu went from saying she hated stardom and only wanted to be there for Julia to saying she wanted to fight everyone in stardom to saying she is going to become the red belt champion one day and she is never leaving stardom like like I I, I love it it's been one of my favorite stories of, of the past year is just seeing the way they've changed and now uh that the current story um is uh Julia challenged Maya Yukihi, uh, who again uh, showed up in Stardom for the first time, uh, teaming with Rebel and Enemy. 
uh, in Triangle Derby. And Julia despises her from their time in Ice Ribbon together. And again, it's one of those things where, you know, I have no idea what their their real relationship might be like. I kind of always assume that wrestlers who like truly, truly hate each other just don't get put in matches together because that would be a problem. Um, <laughs> but like, we don't, we don't know what their real relationship's like. But Julia says they both hate each other. She describes their relationship as being ice cold. Um, but she says she feels like she has to fight Maya. Um, so that's why she called her out. And on the other hand, on, on Maya Yukihi's part, she's supposed to be this, this horrible evil woman who's, you know, infiltrating stardom to, to try and like, basically just, just make a name for herself. And she's really playing it like that. Like she's doing a really great job of like evilly being exactly who Julia says she is by pretending to be nice. Um, so she's, she goes, she says she's just there to, to help out her friends. Um, Julia is immediately confrontational to, towards her and like asking her what she's doing now, what she thinks she's doing here. And just being like, oh, what? Like, I don't have a problem with you. Why would I would never show up here and try and fight you? And it's like she's the world champion. Like you're supposed to want to fight her, but she she feigns like like she has no beef with Julia. Why would she? And it just makes Julia more and more angry. So yeah, I'm, that's that's like the current storyline. So I can't really say more about it than that because it hasn't gone anywhere. But I'm really into that one too. It's really exciting and it's interesting. Um, so first off, for our um, listeners, I just need you to know that Alicia's reaction to. Um, saying that wrestlers uh, wouldn't be in a ring together if they actually disliked each other was uh, very emphatic. <laughs> <laughs> I'm always amazed because I, I just love that you said that, Dana, because you're 100% correct. It's just, we have these very famous, tangible examples of actual violence, shoot violence that has occurred mm-hmm. at certain wrestling promotions. You can literally like look up like videos of certain things like there are, there are tangible examples of shoot violence that has occurred in promotions. And yet I've had to wade through so many tweets about two certain wrestlers coming to the Tokyo Dome during a very important event for everybody's promotions, getting ready to kill each other. And you can like, people mean this when they say it. And it's like, guys, I think it's really weird when we can turn the kayfabe button on and also when we can turn it off. And right now I don't understand why you're, you're turning it off. And this is like, you think these guys are going to come to shoot, kill each other. These guys, yeah. one in particular, like doesn't hit hard, like when he's normally working, but you think he's going to come to the dome to hit hard on a day where it's really important. It's just so weird. But like, that's, that is the thing is like, if there was, there was really a problem between people, like these, these things are, you, you, you know, it's a, it's a thing that, you know, and especially when we have examples of like real violence, I don't know. I'm just yeah, always yeah. amazed. I'm always amazed. <laughs> But it it comes back to what we were saying about having to choose and having to figure out what's shoot and what's, you know, what's storyline. But uh, yeah, sorry, what were you saying, Dana? Um, Yeah, like for, for, you mentioned the the real incidents that have occurred. And that's like, like, that's in Stardom's history as well. Oh, it is. That's not what I was referring to, but you're correct. You're correct. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) Yeah, you know, so, um, so yeah, it's, it's, they're very aware of how wrong things can go there as well. One of my favorite examples, and this was something I, I first talked about years, years ago with, with some friends, um, was about, started talking about Sami Zayn and Kevin Owens, um, because they're two, I think, really well-known examples of people who are obviously very, very close in real life, um, but their wrestling stories have, have 
kind of run the full range of, of emotions you can have against an opponent or a tag partner or whatever. But then there are other people who, who obviously mean a lot to each other and never tag, never in the same faction, never anything. Like I think Tam and Julia are a good example of a very high profile rivalry that, that Southern likes to break out for very, very big matches who obviously like each other a lot in real life, even though they will uh, attest to the death publicly that they, they despise everything about each other. Something that I think is really crazy about wrestling is that sometimes we see these incredibly deep, real friendships projected as the, the strongest hatred. Um, that might be the only way we see two people who are incredibly important to each other publicly interact um, for whatever reason, because that's, you know, just what they've decided their, their relationship is or what. Azumi and Starlight Kid are also a pretty, I think, well-known rivalry among Stardom fans. They've both been wrestling since they were essentially toddlers. And, and they're eternal rivals. They teamed together in Tag League one year, um, but, but basically say, you know, they never want to be on the same faction. They never want to want to tag like they want to fight each other forever. And again, obviously they're friends in real life. Um, just last week, Janai Kai, who is currently in Japan for Tokyo Joshi, um, posted pictures with the both of them on the same night. And it was like, oh, they're clearly hanging out together. And she deleted them later because it was like, that's not supposed to be happening. It shows how much they care about that story and mm -hmm. how much they care about that kayfabe, for sure. Mm -hmm. To your point, I've always felt that, you know, wrestlers are, they're wrestlers, but they're also performers and they're not quite actors, but there is some of that that has to go into the performance and I, I've always felt that with people where they've had to portray like some of the strongest emotions in promos with people and in, in the ring what have you I just I don't think that they can necessarily get there um, with these people they supposedly just hate and despise unless they deeply care about that person and they know that person implicitly and there's a million and one examples that you can I think give that we can all on this call give for that but that's I guess the way I've always viewed it, I don't know if it's because of my background. I don't know if it's because like of the way that I've always read media, um, but I, I firmly believe that. So I'm always sort of taken aback when I see people kind of like leaning into the idea that like these people all just like have to be like cordoned off backstage, I guess, and can't be around each other. Cause I just don't think that they can actually get there unless they like have these very like deep relationships that we're not always privy to necessarily. Although I'm amazed at how many people in stardom post these photos of each other. It's kind of amazing, but <laughs> yeah. um, that's, that's at least how I've always, um, that's just what I've always known in, in me anyway, and accepted over the years. Um, it's something I, I run into a lot, especially with with newer fans, you know, when I actually managed to talk someone into watching Stardom who hadn't watched it all before, things like that, is the way kayfabe is treated in, in Japanese wrestling companies in general. Because everything we see, like the way I describe it is that everything we see is kayfabe, for the most part. Obviously, sometimes things actually really do sneak in that aren't supposed to be seen at all, but everything we're meant to see, at least, like no matter how shoot it seems it's part of the story it's part of the character and yeah it's a very different approach and and some people as far as i know um it used to be pretty real uh even in stardom until fairly recently like 2018 or so um where so tam was in a widow tie for a while and got kicked out in early 2018 
And I heard uh, secondhand from someone who talked to Chris Wolf, like personally about it, that they were so sad uh, during that that event when Tamcock kicked out was because at the time it meant they really couldn't hang out uh, like in public anymore. I believe that policy has changed based on a lot of like social media and posts and stuff like that. And like I just said, Starlight Kid and Azumi clearly hanging out in public together. That's no longer actual policy. Um, and it's just about what gets posted now. But yeah, it's just, it's something that they have to be thinking about like all of the time, it seems like. Um, but like I said, I also, part of what I love is kind of seeing through the cracks sometimes. Um, so, you know, seeing those posts where people who are supposed to hate each other obviously went out to do the same thing while they were on tour. Or again, to mention Julia and Tam again, uh, Julia is kind of very bad at not showing her real emotions about people. So like when she faced Suzu, she cried uh, big time. When she faces Shuri, for a while, they tried to have some like animosity in their feud, but it was just too obvious that Julia likes Shuri a lot. Um, and they kind of just ditched that part of the feud and it became like about like proving themselves to each other. So she she has a tendency to like smile or laugh when she's facing Tam. Um, that kind of betrays that that her hatred doesn't run quite so deep. But then because she's good at what she does, she always plays it as like, like it's because she finds her so annoying sort of thing. That's so interesting. You just made me like remember like my earliest like months years into press uh, <laughs> because I remember when I think things were a little bit stricter I started as a you know being into New Japan and um, I don't know if I've actually like fully admitted to this on a podcast but I guess I'll do it now like I think my first podcast I ever listened to was like the talk and shop like the like Carl Anderson and Doc Gallows like bullet club thing because they were wrestling for New Japan and it was they were they were speaking in English and it was just like a, a way to kind of understand in a way what was happening in New Japan but like not really but um the one thing that was that I picked up that was interesting from them is that the the way that some some but not all Japanese fans still to this day view Heifabe is that like it's real to them you know that's mm -hmm. like a like a very loaded phrase but you have to be really careful with that so it's interesting that like they in 2018 even they could get in trouble maybe for posting certain things because the the bullet club guys back then this was like when was this it was like maybe 2014 15 like whenever that was um they would sometimes get like calls to the front office of people like fans calling to complain about those guys like being a little bit too public with like how they were interacting with some of the, the Japanese wrestlers and like what oh, they were okay. doing and like posting and stuff like that. So they had to be like <laughs> super careful. They were like, they would make comments about certain like, like Okada and like uh, Tanahashi and like other wrestlers on the podcast. And like, they would allude to like Okada, I think like being around sometimes or something, but like they couldn't like actually talk about it because like they didn't want to get in trouble because fans would call and literally would be like <laughs> flipping out about them essentially breaking kayfabe but that's not what they, like the fans would even call it they would just mm. like i don't i don't know necessarily how it gets portrayed in japanese but that stuff is like is like super like was super frowned upon at the time but you you can appreciate that given that like you know i don't know like even in like the like the 90s like people like jumbo saruda and stan hansen wouldn't even like even into the 80s they wouldn't eat in the same restaurant at the same time Mm -hmm. um they would like one of them would like have to leave <laughs> so <laughs> like it's it's like it's interesting but it, there's definitely been like a shift I think in um the attitude especially recently and even I think in like the privacy of like certain wrestlers I know like some of the wrestlers that like we follow they post a lot more about like 
their personal lives in a way that's a, a real shift. I don't know if that's like different in stardom, Dana, if like people are just more open about like their, like the wrestlers themselves are open about like their lives, even outside of wrestling. It varies based on the wrestler. So like some of them are, are very open uh, about their, their daily lives and things like that. Um, typically there's, there's always parts that they talk around stuff like no one is, is, is completely open. Julia, I would say, is pretty open on social media. Like, uh, Micah and Himika talk a lot about their relationship being real and them actually being that close in real life. Tam is, to me, a fascinating example because she is completely not open on social media. She used to be more open, and I think it's really understandable why she stopped sharing more personal info, but it's very, like, her character is so based on, on idol tropes and being this kind of pure image that you can project your feelings onto. But there's also sort of a layer behind that where it's like she's aware that she's playing that character and in kayfabe, like still also trying to portray that. It's not just, oh, in kayfabe, it's real and we know she's portraying that. In kayfabe, she's trying to portray that as well. Um, so it leads to a really interesting thing where she kind of has different layers um so her her social media presence is and, and public presence is very like you don't really see air quotes real tam posts unless it's someone else posting about her um like when she started teaming with nat's boy nat's boy posts like crazy uh she like will post travel days she'll post shoot days like she posts all the time so suddenly there's a uh, just a deluge of of tam posts because now she can publicly be seen with with nat's boy who is another great example of ones who I think were never not friends. And there's so many things, like for one thing, Tam mentioned in their feud that Natsupoi was extremely two-faced because when she left ActRest, she said in tweet um, that she supported her and they were still friends and everything and it was fine. And then she said in like a Shupro article that she hated her and she couldn't believe she had left so suddenly and betrayed them like this. And it's such a clear case of like one was kayfabe and one was real, but she draws them both into kayfabe and it justifies Natsupoi being this horrible liar. But yeah, when they were when they were feuding, they had the whole uh, Mentaiko and Genovese thing, which I don't know if, if you're familiar with that press conference, but Natsupoi was very angry at Tam for, uh, you know, backstage at a show once talking about how she really, really wanted uh, Genovese pasta, like all day, all morning. She was going on about how bad she wanted it. And then they, they break for lunch and she goes and she gets Mentaiko instead. <laughs> so what she did at the press conference was she like brought both and like shoved them in Tam's face. But it was also this, this situation where, you know, if you think about it for even a second, it's a very uh, kind of cute tongue in cheek thing where it's like, you're supposed to hate her, hate her. Like, what were you doing with her all morning to hear her talking about this yeah i really that's that's really good and really funny yeah one of my one of my favorite examples um of of all time of that sort of like things getting through kind of thing was uh natsu sumire and riho were both active in stardom at the same time and they had you know an interesting relationship where natsu if, if anyone who, who listens to this podcast and knows who natsu is knows what natsu's deal is she was very, very, let's say, into Riho 
and, and leave it at that for now. But um, yeah, so she was she was like weird about Riho. Okay. Um, and Riho really did not like her. And then uh, uh, one of the foreign wrestlers who was over at the time, I can't remember exactly who it was, but posted, uh, you know, just like a selfie with their tag partner from like the green room before a show. And Natsu and Riho did their makeup together. You can see them sharing a vanity in the background. And it's just like <laughs> this, this wrestler didn't think about kayfabe on that level. So wasn't being super careful about things like that. But yeah, it was just one of those, one of those things where it's like, yeah, obviously they're, they're very close. And I think that's good in a lot of ways because it makes those storylines, which could be uncomfortable, you know, for some people, but um, it makes it, you know, like it's consensual. They're yeah, coming yeah, up it's, with it, this and they're doing this. And you see that a lot with DDT, you know, you have Don Shokudino. Yeah. You have that element where it's like, you know, they're, they're agreeing to these spots. Yeah. That's actually a really great example, I think, um, because I think a, a lot of people, uh, you know, as far as wrestlers who make some people uncomfortable, I think, you know, it's pretty high up there. And I know when I first started hearing about it, um, I wasn't really sure how I, how I felt about it, but I didn't really watch DDT anyways. But I had some friends and stuff who were like very upset about his whole deal. But then as I learned more Japanese, as I made more friends who, who knew some Japanese, um, as I made more friends who, who follow DDT, it becomes very clear, like, no, that's, that's not the case. He is really gay. Like everyone is, is, in on this and like knows what he's doing and like knows about it beforehand and stuff like that so yeah it's really not like the the horrible thing that some people gut react to it as yeah and there's and to your credit or to your point there's uh, moments where sort of that um kayfabe slips through and they're um hanging out you see i think it was after a hiragana muscle where they're all just sitting around the ring and just relaxing and having fun. And, and Dino comes by and he gives like a little, like they give him a little peck on the left okay. and, and they're just playing around. And, and you get that element of, you know, they're, they're obviously talking about this and, and mm -hmm. enjoying the, the spots as, as silly as they are, as lewd as they are. Um, they're having fun with that, that humor. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, yeah, actually to, to talk a little bit, I guess a little bit about Natsumire, uh, <laughs> there's one story that you had mentioned, and, and this is actually one we have a really good variety you've talked about with Julia and with Lady C, you have these rookie stories and then you have like these top of the card stories. And uh, when you've talked about them, they've always had that same level of engagement and importance. But there's also these moments where these stories are happening in the background and then they culminate into these big moments. And um, that was apparent with Saki Kashima and then sort of her, I guess, tongue-in-cheek joke storyline with Natsu Sumire that turned into something uh, real and big. So if you want to sort of talk about that and how that came to be and how stardom sort of um, put that together. Yeah, so Saki Kashima came back to stardom from retirement in 2018. She had actually been a very early member of stardom, but retired after not too long and was away for like five or six years. Um, so she came back and it was essentially uh, that she came back for Mayu at Io Shirai's request. As Io was leaving for WWE, she, she contacted Saki and basically told her she should start wrestling again. Um, and Saki had apparently been considering wrestling again and came back. And that's that's real. That's something that Saki revealed in like a Q&A. That was re what really happened. She had been a professional pachinko player in the meantime. Wow. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so she comes back, joins STARS uh, as 
Mayu's new tag partner um, right after Tam was Mayu's tag partner. And this is another one of those examples of like cascading stories where I'm only going to talk about Saki right now, but there's so much I could talk about 2018 stars and Mayu's various tag partners from, from that year because they all, it was a very complex year for, for Mayu relationships. So she teams with, with Saki and uh, I'll mostly skip over Saki's like actual main story for the year um because that was you know teaming with Mayu and, and tag titles and stuff like that uh she has a B plot going for pretty much the entire time uh she comes back since um it's a little bit in 2018 but it's mostly in 2019 where she had this rivalry with Natsu Samire Natsu says she's a poser um this this star's goody two shoes is not who she really is she's a thug she's specifically a Yankee um, which if, if you're not familiar at all with like the, the Yankee uh, subculture, um, you can probably just Google it and get some pretty good like visual depictions um, of what exactly she's saying about her. So she just messes with, with Saki. And this is a total like comedy B plot where uh, they, they did a, a costume change battle royal for one of their Golden Week shows that year. And uh, Natsu dressed up as Saki, except she put on this, like her Saki costume was putting on this really cheap, bad blonde wig. Saki did not have blonde hair at the time. Um, like a really bad tracksuit, like cheap flip flops and a Don Quixote bag, which is like a really cheap uh, convenience store chain. Um, she even frequently calls Saki Donkey as, as like a nickname because she says that that's where, where Saki lives. She's always hanging out being a, a hooligan outside of Don Quixote's. She also like when she came into this, this battle royal, because she is cosplaying Saki, she let herself get eliminated in like two seconds because that's how weak she is saying Saki is. Um, so she like sings her theme song to bother her. She harasses her all year. Um, as she does, Saki gets more and more mad and eventually it, it gradually progresses to saying like, yeah, fine. Like, I'm, I'm not a nice girl and I'm gonna beat you up and prove it. This is a really great image from a match they had against each other uh, where Natsu was doing the like Yankee squat, uh, which is like a kind of, I can't really describe it, but it's a pretty uh, iconic pose for that kind of uh, uh, subculture. And, and Saki like did it back to her. Um, and it was like, even though it's totally silly and, and funny, um, just seeing a baby face do that was really, really like a, a big deal um, in, in the moment. So by December of 2019, Sagi has been getting meaner and meaner to Natsu. And by then she's, she's calling herself a baby heel uh, in promos. Um, she's taking chances to not team with stars as like a, a chance to cut loose a little bit and because the thing is um Natsu was kind of right about Saki uh like her past as a wrestler she was uh, a pretty big heel uh in Stardom's early days she teamed with Akita Yasukawa um before Act had, had ever founded a way to tie or anything like that um and like I said she spent her time away from wrestling as a professional pachinko player so she's like not the the squeaky clean good girl that they presented her as um, and then in, in early 2020, she turned on Mayu, betrayed her, uh, hit her over the head with uh, the Oedo Tai wooden sign that they carried around at the time, um, called her an idiot for always getting betrayed by her tag partners. 
Uh, and then, yeah, so she said she hated Natsu still, kinda, when she joined. But then for like the first two months she was in a Waitotai uh, until she had her first set of Waitotai gear made. She, uh, she wore Natsu's gear instead of her own because she couldn't even stand to wear her old star's gear. And uh, just a couple months ago, they actually had a match against each other in Showcase. They had a no holds barred match, which was Natsu's first uh, match back in stardom since the pandemic. And Natsu is no longer a member of Oedo Tai. She is just a freelancer now. And it was just another of those situations where it's like, even though they, they hate each other, you can really see how much they care about each other, like in, in how much glee they were having, breaking these fake bottles over each other's heads, stuff like that. <laughs> Yeah, so I think that's actually a really good um, example of, you know, background storytelling, foreground storytelling, and then this element of, um, you know, shoot fondness. It, it's sort of a culmination of everything we were talking yeah, about. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> how they tell their stories with her wearing the gear of the person she su- assumedly hated. And yeah, no, there's, there's a lot of um, really, really good elements there. Uh, so that's sort of just... That brings us through some really good examples, but um, and shows how these stories are happening in the background. And it really makes you wonder, and we've talked about this sort of throughout the episode, and especially sort of at the top of the episode, how these stories are so often overlooked, how we're always seeing criticism of, and I know Alicia and I see this in our own promotions that we follow too, you know, oh, this match had no story. Um, and something like that. And it, it really makes me wonder, you know, why are these being missed and how we teach this style of how we look for these stories and, and how we sort of um, make people, you know, I guess I want to say train people <laughs> to yeah. sort of, I, that sounds kind of weird, but train people to sort of look for them. And obviously doing podcasts like this really help but I didn't know if you guys had any sort of ideas or thoughts on that matter. Um, I can, I'll, I'll go first, I guess. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, whatever. <laughs> it's, it's a loaded question. It's a hard to Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's, it's actually something I've been thinking about a lot lately. I think to an extent, some people will never care um, just because it's not what they're into wrestling for, which like, to me is a little sad because I feel like you're missing out on something great, but I, I can't make someone care, you know? I, I also know that I have like gotten people into stardom um, by talking about these stories and what they mean to me and stuff like that. So I think the best we can do is just kind of not shut up about it um, and j- just try and make as, as much as we can available. Like I do actually translate um, every single stardom uh, show like even even their small shows I, I don't post uh, all of their shows but I do translate all of them just for myself and all of their press conferences and stuff like that um, it comes down to kind of a, a moral thing for me on that end where stardom does have big corporate backing and I'm not willing to give them that much free labor when they could afford um, actual additional professional translators and just don't seem interested in in prioritizing that so yeah I kind of I don't know, my, my morale un- up until about last month was actually quite low uh, recently, um, struggling with, with exactly that. And just wondering like, how do we convince people? Like it means so much to me and some people just don't care. And it's like, how do you, how do you get them to? But the answer I'm at, at least for now, is just kind of 
talk about it as, as much as you can and hope that the people that do care will find your stuff. Alicia, did you have any thoughts? Well, I completely agree with Dana. I mean, that's that's a big part of why we wound up with what Kickout is right now is that we we wanted to create a space where we could talk about wrestling the way that we talk about wrestling. And we had hoped that other people would find us and relate to it and, and join us in, in wanting to talk about wrestling that way. And um, I'm always a bit dismayed when I see that, you know, that there are, that there are genuinely people that think that wrestling doesn't need to have story or that there are no stories in the, in the matches that they watch. And I guess um, I don't want to get into a, a corner where I, uh, you know, I'm not suggesting that there is a, uh, a right way to watch these things um, because that gets into gatekeeping certainly you know I think that there's um, a multitude of ways that you can watch and enjoy this content but I'm always sort of surprised that there are people who just seem to not care about or not necessarily realize how much story there is to wrestling because even when you go back to the very earliest days of Perez in Japan the storytelling is very straightforward but it's there right post World War II Japan so you have these American Geiko Kujin wrestlers coming over and you have these Japanese baby faces and the stories that the Japanese baby faces are going over the big bad American heels that's a story so there's always story in professional wrestling that is about as bare bones and it's extremely jingoistic but it's a story so yeah. it's always it's always existed so it's it is surprising to me that people can't I, I guess see these things but I guess to maybe why I mean recently in my conversations with folks I've picked up on something where I think that people are and especially because it comes down to what we've been saying the entire time I think part of this comes down to access and people not realizing that these wrestlers are not just in the gym to be these incredible athletes who just go in the ring and they wrestle each other and that's it these guys are thinking about story all the time and people might not realize that because they don't have the access to their thoughts and what they're saying all the time um, because there's not as much uh, translations of what they're saying available all of the time. So it comes down to that, but there is, I think, a reluctance for people to embrace um, that there is story happening all the time. Um, I think that comes down to that thought again of people perhaps being like, uh afraid to um what's the phrasing I want to use here it's people don't want it to uh they don't want to come across as marks they don't want to come across like uh you know that it's that it's real to them I'm going to use that phrasing again people are afraid of that there's a lot of pushback on that which gets you know crossed with people talking about story unfortunately but these things do exist and I think that you know a lot of it does come down to um access and people thinking that uh it's a lot of work to try to keep up with something that's presented to them in a different language but um I do wish people would seek this stuff out more I wish people would also be more um in seeking this information out which people would be very careful with who they seek out be very careful about the level of translations that you're reading there's a lot of MTL that just floats around and people accept that as fact and it's not accurate and we're reading things all the time um that have been floating around in this community for 20 years that are not accurate because it was bad translations from 20 years ago so I wish people would be very discerning of where they get information from but also realize that 
the way that people in Japan, because it's, you know, it's all in their native language and it's all a part of, you know, their culture in essence, the way that they experience the wrestling is different than the way we are experiencing the wrestling because we don't have that natural in due to the fact that most of us can't speak the language and we don't have the firsthand experience of the culture. But those things are important um, and understanding. Do you need those things to enjoy this stuff? No, but it does it does also mean that um, there are stories in this wrestling that are happening all the time and it is there. And I just want people, I guess, to embrace that even if there's issues with access um and issues with faulty translations and everything else very long-winded answer this is a multi-layered <laughs> issue but um yeah it was really interesting like that was a really great answer i think from both of you really uh one thing i guess sort of to wrap things up that i um you actually mentioned alicia uh, while we were talking this sort of beautiful, I guess, moment or quote from um, our friend Matt Charlton's new book, uh, A Companion on the Road Less Traveled, uh, the wrestler Jetta was talking about how stories are crafted and how stories are crafted all the time. Did you want to share that uh, with us real quick before we uh, get to the conclusion? Yeah, so I had um, the great privilege of reading Matt's book, which is out now. If you go to Amazon, you can buy Matt's book, so please do that if you're listening. But I was blown away by Jetta's section of the book and what she chose to talk about in her diary entry because she talked about a group of wrestlers. I'm going to be paraphrasing as well, but she talked about a group of the wrestlers before a match talking about an angle. And they wound up going with something that they were worried about because they were not sure the audience was going to pick up on it and that it would resonate. And they went with it anyway, and the audience got it and they kept going and the segment landed great. And I was like, fuck yeah, this is awesome because <laughs> I want people to, I guess, remember and realize that when they're watching something play out in the ring, there are a million different ways that the wrestlers are approaching this. And there are people who will talk these things out like in advance and it's all there and they've got a plan going in. And then there's just some stuff that happened on the fly. But at the end of the day, like they're, you're watching things that they're just trying and some things are going to land and you're going to get it immediately. And then there's some things they're going to try that don't land, but they're always trying to tell you something. They're trying to tell you a story. It's not just about how many moves they can string together that look fucking awesome. That's great. It's great when the match rocks, but they're also trying to demonstrate to you through a million different vehicles, a story. And it's not always demonstrated in what's happening physically so I loved that from uh Jetta please pick up that book so you can really read it in her words um but that's why that book is important because you get these incredible perspectives from wrestlers in the field and I just hope that people then realize through reading things like that um that you know these these things matter that they're happening <laughs> and and that I thank you for sharing that it really um wanted you to because that to me sort of resonated with what Dana was saying about how stardom tells these stories they're happening and it's these wrestlers trying things and putting things out there for you guys and Dana is doing us all an incredible service in making it available to you <laughs> yeah just thank you um I, I do my best uh I really love that quote, actually. I love Jetta. I don't super follow uh, Eve these days, 
um, just because I, I don't have time. Um, but when I did, she was like a top favorite. So I love using that to, to close out this episode. <laughs> That's awesome. What, um, just to sort of give us a little bit of a conclusion, what other wrestling are you watching uh, other than Stardom? Um, obviously, Stardom is my number one. Time is, is the biggest concern. I also follow Actress Girls, um, which I was trying to, to translate their comments as well because they have so little English coverage. Um, and I think it's a shame because they have some really great talent right now and some really interesting stories, some stories that I'm not super sure about where they're going as well, but that's wrestling. I haven't really had time to keep up with that. So that's been a struggle, but I also follow Akras and occasionally I, I jump back into Do to, to Tokyo Joshi. That's more of like a backlog promotion when I'm caught up on everything else. I'll watch something from like eight months ago, but th I'd say those are my three. Awesome. And one more time, if you could tell everyone where to find you and uh, yeah, that'd be awesome. Uh, yeah. So I'm on Twitter at it's Dana now. Uh, my blog is shine today, believe tomorrow.home.blog um, because I do not pay for premium WordPress. Um, I'm also on the Tumblr uh, at it's Dana now again. So I get it's Dana now.tumblr.com is my writing account, I guess, the blog account. Um, I occasionally post small pieces that I don't really feel are worth like a whole blog post there. I've been pretty down on Twitter lately. I've not been having a great time on Twitter. So I've been using the Tumblr more. So you can get in early before it really blows up. Um, my personal <laughs> Tumblr is, is nakanotamu.tumblr.com. People are welcome to follow me there if they want to, but full disclosure that that's like a, a personal fandom Tumblr. So it's not uh, even as put together as my Twitter is. <laughs> and you have a Kofi page, right, Dana? I do, yes. So that is uh, coffee.com slash it's Dana now. Awesome. We'll definitely check that out and uh, check her out. And thank you guys so much for listening. I hope you guys learned a whole lot about stardom, how it tells its stories, and uh, had a little bit of food for thought on uh, approaching wrestling and wrestling storytelling.